There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today we're exploring the life, legacy, and teachings of one of the godfathers of modern wild game management and conservation, Eldo Leopold, and ultimately discussing why this stuff still matters today for hunters and anglers. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast, brought to you by First Light. And today we are back for week two of our Conservation Month series. Yep, you heard me right, we're talking conservation. And we're doing that because we only get the benefit of deer on the landscape and wild places to explore and the opportunity to hunt these really cool critters because a bunch of people a long time ago gave a damn about conservation. I'm telling you what, I really badly hope that someone 40 years from now can say the same thing. I really want to be one of those people a long time ago who gave a damn. And I'm betting that many of you do too. So that is why today we're going to talk about Eldo Leopold. Now, you might have heard this guy's name before, Eldo Leopold, if you have listened to this podcast for a long time, or maybe you listened to the Meat Eater podcast or you watched the Meat Eater show, or you read my book, That Wild Country, or really if you've consumed any hunting-slash-conservation-related content. His name and his writings and quotes from him are widely circulated still today. He's very much still in the, the cultural zeitgeist, I guess you could say. But how much do you really know about him? Why do people keep quoting him? Why should you care about what this guy had to say? What's there to learn from him? How is this guy, who lived more than 70 years ago, relevant at all to us deer hunters and anglers and outdoors people today, still now in 2022. That's what I want to explore today. And by doing so, I'm thinking that we're all going to be able to learn a little bit more about what we as hunters and outdoorsmen and women can do now and in the future to ensure a better future for deer, deer hunting, and the rest of the natural world. (laughs) Sky high aspirations, I realize, but, uh, Why the hell not? So joining me today to discuss Aldo Leopold and his conservation philosophy are two people. First off, someone familiar, we've got Doug Duran. You probably know Doug if you've watched Meat Eater or if you listen to this podcast. 
He's a Wisconsin landowner and hunter and a conservation advocate who's strongly been influenced by Leopold's message and who's now specialized to a degree in spreading that message. Now, Doug's going to help us ground Elder Leopold's legacy in the now and the, the today of what's what's happening for hunters and land managers actually on the landscape. He's doing that kind of stuff now. So he's going to help us kind of make this stuff tangible. Now, secondly, we're joined by Stanley Temple. Now, Stan is a senior fellow at the Eldo Leopold Foundation. He's a conservation biologist, and he previously was professor in conservation in the Department of Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That's the position that was first held by Aldo Leopold himself back in the 40s, I believe. Now, Stanley brings to the table a lifetime worth of experience and insight into Aldo's teachings. He's one of the foremost experts on Leopold's conservation legacy, and he's been a true torchbearer of that philosophy now in the modern day. So, my friends, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is going to be good. So, sit back, grab a cup of coffee or a beer or or a water bottle if you're on the treadmill. Maybe pull up your copy of a Sand County Almanac if you have one, and let's get into it. All right, here with me now, I have Doug Duran and Stanley Temple. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time this morning to have this call. Uh, I'm excited about it. This is a this is a topic. This is a character we're going to discuss who is is often on my mind, but doesn't often make it onto a podcast like this where we're usually so focused on you know how to hunt, how to do specific things in your woods, how to improve land, how to find animals. Um, but there's this whole other layer that I think lives, maybe it's like an umbrella that lives over all of that, that speaks to how it is that we have these places and these animals in the first place. And I think today's topic and, and the person we want to talk about, Aldo Leopold, uh, has a lot to do with the fact we still have these resources and opportunities. Um, and Stanley, from what I understand, you are one of the absolute best people to speak to about Mr. Leopold. So I'm curious, can you quickly give us just an introduction to you and your history up to this point and and what brought you to a place where you now have dedicated your life to speaking and learning about conservation and and the legacy of Aldo Leopold? Sure, Mark. Um, My first introduction to Aldo Leopold came when I was in high school and happened by chance to read a copy of his book, A Sand County Almanac. And um, I was an outdoorsy kid, very much into all kinds of outdoor activities. And that book really resonated with me. Um, The opening line especially got me hooked when Leopold said, there are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. And I was definitely one of the cannots. So I wanted to pursue a career in, in ecology and conservation. I went to Cornell University, where I had the good fortune of having one of Aldo Leopold's former graduate students as my academic uh, advisor, and he shared a lot of Aldo Leopold uh, lore with me. Um, after doing a lot of conservation work around the world, uh, I was recruited at the University of Wisconsin to be the, the third person to occupy the position that Aldo Leopold once held, which was perhaps uh, notable as the very first position in academia in the world devoted to this new field of wildlife uh, management. After my career 
in academia, in which I mostly focused on how to recover endangered species and private land conservation, um, I ended up sort of furthering my connection with the Aldo Leopold Foundation by becoming a senior fellow. And over the last, uh, well, actually now it's, it's many years, almost 15 years, um, I've been doing this for the Aldo Leopold Foundation, basically outreach for them. Uh, I'm curious why, why do you, well, let me, let me take it back a step actually, before we go into the why, um, I guess we should get one quick thing on the table for everybody, because there are some folks who again, have heard the name Aldo Leopold, but don't know a whole lot more about why this man is important or why he's someone that was so influential to you or why this book you mentioned, The Sand County Almanac, is something that so many people still have on their bookshelves and point towards, uh, why that opening line you mentioned is something that resonates with so many people, myself included. Um, so do you have like a... <laughs> Do you have an elevator pitch for Aldo Leopold when when someone who doesn't know anything about Aldo Leopold walks up to you and, and says, so you work for this foundation. Uh, who is this guy you guys keep talking about? Do you have a Cliff Notes introduction to this man and his legacy to kind of give us a foundation to, to start from that you could share? Sure. Um, Aldo Leopold is probably best recognized as one of the most influential, if not the most influential, uh, conservationist of the 20th century and still remains so into the 21st. He was a lifelong outdoorsman, lifelong hunter, bird watcher, whose career touched on many of the newly developed ideas about conservation in North America. Uh, and his life and career spanned the history of modern conservation. And along the way, he made and continues to make important contributions to that history. Um, for Leopold, he's probably best known for A Sand County Almanac, the book that he uh, wrote at the end of, of his life and has now been translated into 15 languages, has sold millions of copies, and is widely regarded as providing the, the ethical or moral foundations of the modern conservation movement. But it's just amazing when you go back and look at his history. He was the right person at the right time. His life and career, as I said, touched on so many important developments in modern conservation. And as a very skillful communicator, Leopold was able to make substantial, uh, sometimes paradigm-shifting contributions to that history. Yeah. And what's, what's kind of unique to me or what maybe what just stands out to me about Leopold is is that he not only was influential at the end of his life with the writing of this book, and then also of course with with his work at the University of Wisconsin and, and game management and and that book as well, but the fact that he had these two sides of what he did, I suppose he had this he had this writer side, he had this wildlife manager and academia side, and then he had this whole earlier life in which he was involved with the Forest Service and in which he became a, a wilderness advocate and one of the first people to really, um, you know, speak out for that need for there to be wild places preserved. Um, so he kind of touched a whole lot of different aspects of, of wildlife conservation 
um, across his life. He wasn't just a one trick pony, I guess. He, he touched a lot of different aspects of this thing, um, which, which is impressive, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's quite important, Mark, when you look at, he was born in 1887. So his early uh, childhood uh, growing up, there really wasn't anything of an organized conservation movement uh, in North America. And as a boy, he was witness to the consequences of that. Uh, he saw the extinction of the passenger pigeon, the, the near extinction of the bison. And those sort of tragic events in our history obviously had a big impact on him. His father was a great outdoorsman and, and hunter and uh, instilled in his son uh, this idea of behaving ethically when you're in the out of doors. Um, that career that, that we've been talking about uh, started with the U.S. Forest Service, a brand new U.S. Forest Service. Leopold was one of the first uh, generation of recruits to manage the millions of acres of newly created national forests. For Leopold, that was in Arizona and, and New Mexico. So this Midwestern kid who grew up in Iowa and was educated at Yale University uh, finds himself in a completely alien habitat in the wildlands of the Southwest. And it was there in the U.S. Forest Service that he made some of his uh, important early contributions, uh, especially his contributions in the Forest Service sort of have a, a, a very important place in the history of, of that agency. Leopold was one of the first to advocate for what we now might call ecosystem management, of recognizing the ecological limits of an ecosystem and trying to manage that ecosystem within those boundaries making sure you keep all the parts and that the ecosystem remains resilient. As you said, he was also responsible in no small part for the creation of the very first wilderness area on public lands in the U.S. He did that in 1924, 40 years before we passed the, the Wilderness Act. And the Gila Wilderness uh, stands as a testament to Leopold's passion about protecting wild places. And for your audience in particular, when Leopold tried to justify preserving the Gila wilderness, um, it was largely to preserve an opportunity for outdoor recreation in a wilderness setting, especially hunting. He described the features of a wilderness area as being capable of, of supporting a, a true wild experience in which you could uh, essentially get yourself lost in a wilderness area for a couple of weeks on a pack trip. Um, and he was one of the founders of the modern uh, wilderness protection movement. And then his real passions were never with forestry. They were with wildlife. In mid-career, he shifts his interest to wildlife, um, becomes one of the really inspirational, visionary leaders of a movement away from this idea of protecting wildlife to managing wildlife. And he introduces what at the time was a completely new field uh, in 1933 with his book, Game Management. Uh, that's really a sort of a, a limiting title. It's really about wildlife management in its, in its broadest sense. But he was one of the first individuals, surprisingly, who saw the connection between ecology and conservation. And his book, Game Management, introduces this idea of science-based management of populations rather than just sort of passively protecting uh, wildlife. And it certainly propelled him to the, the pinnacle of influence in the modern conservation movement. Um, 
after 1933, if you were professionally involved in wildlife conservation, your job up to that point was almost certainly as a game warden. And after 1933, the profession transitioned into wildlife manager, a really important philosophical and, and practical transformation. Leopold spent the second half of his career at the University of Wisconsin in this brand new position that the university had created for him. And as was true throughout his life, he was constantly evolving, exploring new ideas. And he pretty quickly shifted his primary sort of challenge in conservation from wildlife management to the issue of conservation on private lands and the challenge of how you get private landowners to engage in conservation. And that ultimately, that challenge ultimately led him to what he viewed as a solution, which was this idea of, of ethics, um, his land ethic, environmental ethics, sort of understanding our place in nature and appreciating um, the ethics of our relationship with nature. Mm, yeah, I, I want to dive into that specifically. But before that, uh, Doug, when... When we speak about that specifically, the idea of, of conservation on private land and and some of the things that Leopold explored on that front, uh, that that rings to me a, a lot about what you have dedicated your life to. Can you can you give us a little history as to how you came to Leopold and why he's become so relevant to you and what you do now? Um, sure. Uh, first, I could listen to, to Stan talk all day about Leopold. Um, uh, and, and I actually came to Leopold in a similar way. Uh, I was in high school and um, in the library, and, and there's this uh, book on the, on the counter, a Stan County Almanac. And um, I read the, I, I began to read the book and, and, and got super interested in it. And what was so um interesting to me about it is that here's this guy who's able to express <clears throat> so eloquently the kinds of things that I was already experiencing, you know, um, Mark, you know, that I, go, I, I manage the farm for my family that's been in our family almost 120 years now. And, um, didn't, you know, I, I began to appreciate at that time, the lessons that I was learning from my grandfather and my, my father about, how we were taking care of the land and um you know and these are are two men my my grandfather was born about the same time that leopold was and my dad was born in the 1920s um and the driftless area where our farm is and and actually only about 30 miles from from the uh, leopold shack and and the uh the leopold foundation um many of the practices that uh, in that second half of his life at the university um, that, uh, he discussed and dis discusses and, and, uh, explains and encourages, you know, we're practiced in our area because, you know, as a little kid, you'd ask these questions like, how come we plant the fields like this, you know, contour strips and, and, um, well, it's soil management. And, um, that was, you know, sort of my beginning in it. And then over a, a lifetime of, well, lots of odds and ends and being around the country and conservation has sort of been a theme through all of it. And now in the, um, I guess the last third of my life, um, 
uh, I'm really dedicating it towards what's next um, on our farm and in our area here in the Driftless. Um, and, you know, I, I think about Leopold uh, in a lot of different ways. I was actually at the lacrosse the other day and I, I came through Coon Valley and I stopped and, and uh, contemplated for a minute at the historical marker that's there along the highway about the soil conservation project um, first in the nation and uh, that Leopold was part of in the 19, I think it was 1933, the Civilian Conservation Corps. You think about everything that was going on at that time, um, you know, the Depression and, and the Dust Bowl and all these things. And, you know, here's Leopold is, is out there in front of that and engaging with people. And, you know, here's this brilliant man who, I don't know if it was you or Stan who already referred to it, but here's this brilliant man who, you know, is thinking on this high academic level, yet the practical applications of what uh, he was talking about really resonated with people and, and continue to to this day. And that's really where my inspiration is um, comes from is from Leopold and that, that kind of application. And, and how do you see, or what is it that you see from that message that you think is most relevant today to, to people listening to this, to hunters, to, to private land managers who have something that, might be primarily for hunting. Um, what of his, of the numerous things he kind of represents? What do you think it is that's that's most relevant to what we do? One of the things that I've figured out um, is that once you establish a philosophy, a personal philosophy, um, and I certainly borrowed mine from Leopold, that when you start to um, after that the, the application of, of you know, what the specifics are of what you're going to do. You know, uh, Leopold said, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity. When we see the land as a community to which we belong, we begin to use it with love and respect. Um, I kind of boiled that down to, you know, my, my motto, which is it's not ours, it's just our turn. And when I begin to look at uh, anything that we're doing on our farm or that I talk with people about, I, th- I think about what happened in the past what I'm doing now and how that's going to affect the future. Um, and so when we start talking about um, habitat management, um, I talk about you know conservation. I talk about wildlife habitat versus um, deer management or deer habitat management because, gee, good forestry and good, good uh, wildlife habitat is good for you know, deer as well. So it's a bigger community rather than... Um, uh, you know, being very honed in or very specific about one um, one species. I mean, we can concern ourselves with with one species, but um, I, I'm just trying to look at things in a, from a wider standpoint. And I think that private landowners who I I work with and and um, and and thoughtful people about hunting and being involved with the outdoors, if they keep that a philosophy in mind, that the specifics of it. Um, are easier to sort through. And that's one of the things I really got from Leopold. And I think that people should, uh, I would like to think that people will, will, will get from um, understanding him. I mean, you can go down big rabbit holes about specifics, but, um, and, and all the incredible work that the guy did in a, in a relatively short lifetime. Yeah. But um, starting with philosophy. So, so on the philosophy thing, 
Stan, you you had brought up there when you were last speaking. You brought up the land ethic, which which is maybe what Leopold is most known for. Is this concept that has has since had a life of its own, and people continue to point back towards? Um, can you give us uh, an explanation of what the land ethic is that Aldo described in his book? What that means? What that looks like today in any kind of in any kind of way, what's the land ethic and why does that matter? Well, Leopold described the land ethic to the world in his book, The Sand County Almanac, and he described it as the end result of his life journey. Uh, Leopold certainly didn't anticipate when he wrote the book that he would die uh, of a heart attack at age 61 before the book came into print in, in 1949. But the land ethic is widely regarded as his most sort of universal contribution in that it spans the entire sort of universe of conservation, or indeed the entire uh, relationship that we have with the natural world. Leopold struggled throughout the last 15 years of his life with this challenge of how to get landowners to do the right thing, Uh, coming as he had from his first half of his career in the Forest Service, his first inclination was to do it by regulations. By God, we'll force him to practice conservation. And Mm -hmm. after he did some interactions with private landowners, he realized how much resentment there would be to that approach and decided to try something different. And that brought him into Coon Valley, which Doug just mentioned. It was the first watershed um, scale project in conservation in the U.S. And to Leopold's credit, he shifted that entire project from being essentially an engineering project on how you build check dams and and do contour plowing and that kind of band-aid approach to, to soil and water conservation to being a much more holistic look at the entire watershed, looking at it both from the perspective of the environment and people, looking at it from the perspective of ecology and economics and sociology, a real holistic um, look. And Coon Valley worked because of government incentives and subsidies. And for a time, Leopold was really high on subsidies and essentially an, an economic incentive for doing conservation. But he quickly soured on that when he realized that once the government subsidies and incentives stopped flowing, many landowners reverted right back to some of their old irresponsible uh, practices. And he wanted really something that would be enduring, something that didn't depend on regulations or economic incentives. And eventually, that leads him to this idea, which was pretty much unique to his thinking of an ethical relation with land. He, he frames it in terms of community. And I think Leopold, being a very skillful communicator and knowing how to explain difficult concepts, he said that we all understand that we live within human communities. And within that human community, there have to be some universally accepted guidelines on what's morally acceptable to do within that community. If we don't, the community becomes dysfunctional. And Leopold made by analogy the the context that the same way that we live in a human community, we also live in an ecological community. 
that as he described it, includes the soils, the waters, the plants, the animals, all of the other things in the natural environment around us. And just as the same way that there have to be some moral compasses that guide our behavior within the human community that we live in, there have to be some ethical guidelines for living in that natural community. And that's where his land ethic uh, comes in into play. Leopold was clever enough to uh, realize that what he was proposing was a, a dramatic shift in our American view of, of land. As Doug said, we regarded it as, as a commodity belonging to us, that we were free to do whatever the heck we wanted to do with our land, that it was our private property. And for Leopold, this tension between private property and the public's interest in the broader natural environment was essentially the tension that led him to ethics. He reckoned that if you had a moral compass, if you had a, a good idea of what was right and wrong to do with your land, then you would probably obey regulations. You'd probably use economic incentives to, to further mm -hmm. uh, the health of your land. And certainly, you would not want to do things that would be harmful to your land and, and the ecological community in, in which you live. So when Leopold introduced the land ethic, it was a very, very new idea, one that uh, actually didn't really take hold immediately. It probably wasn't until the 1960s and 1970s when we sort of got into the modern environmental uh, period that suddenly people rediscovered Leopold and realized that he had basically given the moral foundations of the modern environmental movement, this more holistic view of our relationship with the natural world. And sort of reflecting that, there was a big time lag. Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac, was published in 1949 after five different publishers had rejected it because they didn't think there was any readership for this type of book. Mm. And uh, finally, Oxford University Press took a gamble and published it. And you know, the other five publishers were right. The book was a total dud. It hardly sold at all through the 1950s and early into the 1960s. And it wasn't until 1966 when Oxford University Press, I always say it was either dumb luck or brilliant marketing that they came out with a paperback edition just at the very moment when the modern environmental movement was kicking off. And suddenly, almost 20 years after Leopold had written about the land ethic, suddenly there was a readership ready to read what he had written, understand it, and be motivated by it. And since then, sales of a Sand County Almanac have just been exponential. As I said, it's sold millions of copies and is now read in 15 languages around the world. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? 
It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So, Stan, you bring to you brought a thought to mind for me. One of these kind of oh legacies of of our past, I suppose, that still makes uh, makes for a number of challenges today. You know, in, in the book, he writes that a land ethic changes the role of Homo sapiens from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it, and that seems to be the the crux of making the shift to having a land ethic is to to enlarge your boundaries of what you are, what community you are part of, from just people and what we need to also the land and the animals and and the air and water around us, um, and looking at not as commodity but as as, as equals in some way. Um, but that is in contrast to what I think Aldo referred to as an Abrahamic view of the world um, in which, you know, many people look at our role within the natural world as those of, of having dominion over it, right? We have, there's some that believe we have dominion over all the land and the animal and the fish, and we are to do whatever we want with it. That's one kind of worldview. And then there's this other worldview in which we're saying, hey, no, let's be a part of it and enlarge the scope of who and what we care about. How do we, how do we settle or, or how can we make sense of these two different worldviews? Or what do you say to someone who has this more uh, domineering viewpoint of how we should interact with the world that it's, that's just here for us to use? How do, you, how do you settle those two viewpoints? Well, I think Leopold did it brilliantly um, by analogy to the human community and that uh, self-serving behavior um, often is in conflict with the broader community interests. In the same way with land ownership, private 
self-centered interests are often in conflict with the broader uh, community interests. Whether you're talking about the human community that obviously has an interest in how private landowners manage their land, but also the, the health of the ecological community. So uh, for Leopold, he realized he was up against a big hurdle because that, as he described it, the Abrahamic view of our relationship with land uh, and this sort of sacred uh, regard for private property that's part of American culture were huge obstacles to overcome. And Leopold being not just an ivory tower, you know, dreamer, uh, but a very practical person recognized that the shift that he thought was the way forward was not going to happen quickly. In fact, in the land ethic, in the essay, the land ethic in a Sand County Almanac, uh, he makes the analogy to how we treat human rights. And he said, you know, we've been working on human rights for millennia, and we still haven't gotten that right. And he mm -hmm. said, in sort of a parallel vein, that it's probably going to take a long time for this idea of the human role in nature changing from a domineering, self-centered role uh, to a more ethical and, as it's often described, sort of ecocentric uh, view of our place in nature. So he left a challenge for us, and that is it's up to us to make the shift. He can't make that for us. Uh, he even says that nothing so important as an ethic is ever written. It evolves in the minds of a thinking community. And I think for Leopold, the thinking community that he perhaps had the closest ties to in formulating the land ethic were private landowners here in the Midwest. And his hope that within that community, a thinking community, that people, once they were sort of started down this road, would quickly evolve into a land ethic that not only ensured their future, but the future of the natural ecological community around them. How well we've done that? Well, you know, in the 75 years since Leopold presented this idea, you can certainly point to lots of evidence that people are now treating their land with more love and respect, as, as Leopold described it. Conservation is practiced on the land increasingly. You don't see as much horrible land abuse as Leopold did in the 20s and 30s when he started uh, his um, work on private lands here in the Midwest. So we're definitely making progress. You can point to all of the policies and legislation that have happened at the national level that clearly reflect this sort of expanded view of our role uh, in nature and our responsibility for taking care of, of the world around us. Yeah. Doug, would you, do you have anything you would add on the overarching thoughts of how we, we make sense of these different worldviews and how we might be able to live in this way as opposed to in that of the commander and conqueror of all that's around us? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I don't think, uh, boy, that tension that uh, Stan talks about is certainly is certainly there. But it, this isn't a, it, it's a, um, it's not a battle, right? I mean, it's not as if we can't um, 
that we can't uh, uh, make use of and and make a living from our land. Um, but I can give you examples of of where having a land ethic uh, would matter. Um, you know, the contour uh, strips of the of the hillside but still being farmed. Um, so you know, there might there are those who might say, well, you create a desert when you plant corn or soybeans or um, you know, a, a row crop and then take that row crop off. And then there's a, there, there is a desert there. Now, how we treat the soil is a, you know, is a question worthwhile, but we see, you know, evolution in that, um, you know, big green farmers in, in, in some in my area, I, I'm seeing more and more cover crops planted in the fall, um, that are, you know, that are, are putting back into the soil. Um, and they're being, um, incentivized to do that, sure, but they're also philosophically, you know, sort of getting at. I've seen in my lifetime sort of this switch from really small little farms and um, where, where there was plenty of land abuse. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, heck, I can point to some of it on our on our farm um, where our creeks were wide and wide and and and, uh, and and very shallow because of the amount of cattle that were in them. To now they're 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 almost new. Uh, <laughs> they were, it was described as uh, as a young stream to me the other day by a um, hydrologist. Um, in that, they're it's faster and and uh, and narrower, um, but the banks still aren't exactly what they would be over a period of time. So that's something that we're talking about. Um, and we're going to be able to you know make a difference in that that bottom, sort of helping nature along. But that doesn't mean necessarily that we can't. Um, still do some pasturing that we can't still do some farming and you know so it's being thoughtful about how you're um how you're um you know working with that land and 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 realizing economic benefit um and i think that's really what um you know part of what leopold was pointing at man i i think about the soil conservation service you know from the 30s and the ccc doing that work up in uh Coon Valley and, and looking at my own, uh, the, the property that I, that I have a good fortune to manage. And I'm working with NRCS on a fairly regular basis, you know, with things like, um, CRP and CREP and, and, and they're, they're contracts over a certain period of time. But one of the things that happens as you put land into those kind of uh, programs, um, you realize, well, boy, that land, that highly erodible land, marginal land, that probably shouldn't have been cropped, but we can crop up above that if we provide those buffers. And, and so it's, it's almost as if the incentivizing programs, um, you know, if you look at it right, that it encourages you, it encourages the philosophy of living with the land. Um, and so those are examples, and I, and I see it every day around here. Yeah, I think Doug makes a good point that uh, throughout his career here in the Midwest, he was dealing with working lands. Uh, by the time he got back to the Midwest and arrived in Madison in 1924, I mean, there was hardly any wild lands left in the Midwest uh, and certainly very little public land. But the land that he had to work on was basically working lands. These were places that Leopold well understood people not only lived on the land, but they had to make a living on the land. And what he was all about was essentially trying to shape the way that we lived on the land mm. and how we do that 
in a way that today we might use the word sustainable in a way that sort of preserves the, the working health of the land. And certainly when Leopold first uh, started tackling this problem in the 1920s and 1930s, you would probably have to conclude that the landscapes of the upper Midwest were about as unhealthy as they have ever been. Soil and water conservation was rampant. Wildlife populations were horribly uh, depleted. White-tailed deer were scarce on the landscape. Wild turkeys and uh, many uh, waterfowl, like, like wood ducks, were, were virtually uh, gone. Um, I always remind people that during this period, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and the, the Conservation Department actually was captive breeding raccoons and releasing them around the states because raccoons had become so scarce. So that was the landscape that Leopold was working with. And obviously, he struggled to find a way out of the, the mess that we'd created of, of the Midwestern landscapes. So what about today? You know, if someone's listening to this or they've read the book and they thought to themselves, you know what, this land ethic, that that resonates. This makes some sense to me. I can... I can see why it might be better to live and try to strive to live more uh, sustainably, to try to live and look at the natural world around us as part of a community rather than something for us simply to consume all the time. Um, if this resonates with someone, what does this look like in action? You know, Doug provided a couple examples, but Stan, could you expand maybe a little bit on, on what a land ethic in your life might actually look like coming to fruition? How do we how do we put this kind of philosophy into action? Well, Leopold gave us uh, a golden rule. Golden rules are are really valuable. They're you know these these tight, compact little maxims that uh, you can always use as a, a guidance in making decisions. And for Leopold, his golden rule was a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community, it is wrong when it tends otherwise. That's just a beautiful sentence that captures the essence of every time we have to make a decision about our relationship with the natural world to pause and think about it. What are the consequences of our actions going to be? And Leopold recognized that there does have to be, obviously, the economic uh, parts of that decision for private landowners, but it also has to involve, uh, as he described it, you know, this, this golden, golden rule. So I think for most people, the first step is to, is to basically learn what this is all about. And probably the best way to do that is to go back to the primary source. If you haven't done so, read a Sand County Almanac. Understand Leopold's passion for the natural world. Understand um, what he was getting at when he wrote the essay, A Land Ethic. And then think deeply about your own land ethic. They said there's not just one land ethic. There's not the land ethic. There's the ethic that everyone evolves in their own thinking about their relationship with the land. But it should be within the boundaries that Leopold sort of defined in, in the land ethic. And that's fine. But then you have to do the hard work. You have to make your lifestyle reflect it. 
you have to make sure that the decisions that you make in your life about your lifestyle, about the land that you perhaps are responsible for, and think deeply about the consequences for the natural world. And that's not enough. Even though you might be doing a good job on your land and might be doing a good job in the decisions that you make, there's also the challenge about spreading the word to others. People like Doug, who uh, have a passion for, for spreading their enthusiasm about a land ethic, becomes an important part of it. Because, as I said, a land ethic is only going to spread when you have exemplars, when you have people who demonstrate this so that others can see that this is a viable way of, of living in the world. And for people who have adopted a land ethic, spreading it to others, contributing to the broader conservation effort, not just focusing on, on your property, uh, becomes almost an imperative, one that uh, you're impelled to do uh, as a result of, of adapting your own land ethic. Yeah. Back to you, Doug, on, on that. A few of those examples Stan was just sharing. You know, when you, you, you read a Sand County Almanac, you've grown as a land manager and as a hunter. And I know over the years you have shifted how you manage your farm, how you've approached hunting, how you've approached land management. Um, could could you share any specific examples of how you have put the land ethic into uh, into action on your place, whether it be with how you hunt or how you've worked to the land or anything specifically that you've done and what that shift looked like for you? Well, um, let's go to the thing that is near and dear to both your and my heart, and that is um, white-tailed deer hunting. Um, Southwest Wisconsin is one of the hotbeds of, um, unfortunately, one of the hotbeds of chronic wasting disease. And um, we've been uh, living with and dealing with uh, CWD for over 20 years. And it certainly... Uh, has affected um, uh, has affected my attitude about um, hunting. I'd like to think that um, I uh, had sort of taken my dad's philosophy um, with me at all times about hunting, and that is that you're also hunting for the other guy. That it's a community effort. That it's a cooperative effort. Um, but um, you know, I may have strayed from that a little bit um but i yeah i don't think so when we were the way we managed um you know we were managing deer on our property we were very concerned about uh, ecosystem balances as you know and 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 stan knows a little bit about my work with um oak regeneration (laughs) well um deer and uh oak regeneration are 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 in conflict (laughs) a lot of deer and oak regeneration you know they they love those white oak acorns and they, they love those red oak seedlings. So it's really hard to regenerate oak. Um, so we, for, for more than 20 years, have, have worked hard to have a balance of deer on our uh, property. And I thought that that meant um, that the handful of people that hunted the, the property um, would, would take more deer and that we would uh, be sure that we were you know, um, taking does and working on population and at the same time um, managing for, uh, you know, a balanced herd and all the things that we talked about with the National Deer Association. One of the things that I realized um, eight or 10 years ago is that 
I, um, I don't want to be a, a deer exterminator. Um, I have too much respect for the animal. And when we were trying to take more deer, I'll give you an example on 600 acres this year, we took 40 deer. Well, I'm not interested in, in, in generally in, in taking one or two. So, um, it, I saw the opportunity. I saw the opportunity to share our land um, with more people, and by doing that, um, we've opened up. Um, last year, we had over thirty people. Almost, 30, I guess, thirty-five was the total number of people who hunted. And um, in doing that, it gives me the opportunity to talk to um, to advocate for. Um, or good conservation and in particular good deer management and you know we're here to um, reduce the population and um, and we're here to have a, a, a community of hunters and we're here to um, manage this disease as best we can in, in our small area and um, and hopefully that and, and it feels like and seems like it has you know spread out from our our central area but just that, where I've now allowed, uh, and and honestly, the people who are also my my family and, and have have agreed that yes, we need to bring more people in and let them have that opportunity as well um, to interact with nature and 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 harvest deer and have that whole experience and um, and then understand you know why we're doing this and and how we're doing it. Um, and so that's I, I think one of the first things that I would point to is our deer management. Others are how we, um, as I just mentioned, how we're regenerating red and white oak. And I've worked with um, the uh, American Forest Foundation and the Ella Leopold Foundation folks um, on a project called My Wisconsin Woods. And, and our farm is one of the examples of, of that. But it's, it's just long-term thinking, long-term management. Um, you know, uh, as Stan was uh, talking before, I was I was thinking I was just writing down these words of learn, evaluate, plan, act, and then advocate. That was the one that that um, that had really only began to stick with me in the last eight to ten years. Um, so uh, I, I think using that Leopold's philosophy is 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 a part of of everything that that I think about as we um, do projects on our farm and that we involve conservation and that we share our land. Um, and I hope that that's something that other landowners will think about more. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of described a, an evolution of sorts there for you, Doug, in a couple different ways. And uh, it brought to mind something that I, I guess I've experienced over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and it kind of was put into words in a book I just read. Uh, it's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And and she explores um, from her uh, perspective um, indigenous wisdom and conservation and how those things intertwine. And a very important uh, concept within her culture is this, this this idea of reciprocity with the natural world. And that just resonated really, really strongly with me when I think so much about over the years, how much I've gotten from the natural world, how much joy deer hunting has brought me or how much awe I've experienced standing on a mountain or floating down a river. I mean, uh, so many of the very best things in my life have have stemmed from wild places and animals and, and these different things out there that we get to experience. And I, I, I keep having this 
like weight on my chest that I feel about I've taken so much I get so much like so much good has come to me because of these places I, f- I feel this overwhelming sense of a need to reciprocate that in some way to somehow give back to somehow even the scales and that's that's become just a constant thought that's always on my mind in one way or another and it seems like this is something that many people have thought about for for a long long time um but when when you read Eldo's words here within um, a sand county almanac he talks about the land ethic i think he gets at a similar concept but doesn't speak about that specifically i'm curious stan when you when you hear me talk about this idea of reciprocity um and and how indigenous cultures might have thought about that and so much that they did what are your thoughts personally on how that jives with a land ethic what are your thoughts on what leopold might have thought um I guess I'm not sure what my question is, but what what are your thoughts when that comes to mind? Well, Robin's book is, you know, probably destined to be a classic um, in the same way that a Sand County Almanac is. It's she's a wonderful um, writer and obviously has a, a, a land ethic that is was not only informed by her cultural heritage as an indigenous woman, um, but also basically her understanding of where Aldo Leopold was coming from. And Aldo Leopold, this is a question that comes up quite often, is how much did Aldo Leopold borrow from indigenous cultures about our relationship with the land? And he certainly had many opportunities to to interact with, with Native Americans, and he certainly understood the relationships that they had with the land and was very respectful of, of those. But it's not clear that his land ethic was derived directly from the sort of Native American ideas about our relationship with the land. Leopold's idea was based on ecology. It was based on a science, um, as opposed to the indigenous relationships with nature that were evolved by their direct contacts uh, with the land. But no question that indigenous cultures and, and Aldo Leopold's land ethic have a lot in common about uh, the values that we get from living on this planet and living on landscapes that are healthy, uh, that provide for our needs in exchange for our living in a sustainable way on, on those, those lands. So, yes, definitely, Aldo Leopold really has inspired the modern sort of environmental ethics movement. And there are lots of individuals like Robin Kimmerer who have thought deeply about it and have provided some of those, uh, I won't say ideas, but some of their thoughts about uh, the way forward. And certainly it didn't end with Aldo Leopold in 1949. We're continuing to evolve, inspired by people of the past. But... It's our challenge now. Yeah. It's not up to uh, people of the past to, to show us how to make this happen. It's up to us to figure out how to do it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick 
folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees, it's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it. Sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill. And enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. You mentioned that you know there's been a lot of positive progress in the 70-some years since Leopold died. I'm curious, though, if he were still around today, what of all the events of our age in relation to the natural world, the environment, conservation, wildlife, anything like that, what do you think would keep Aldo Leopold up at night today? (laughs) Well, um, given where we are right now in the conservation world, I think there's one thing that would have kept him up at night and probably would have had a lot to say about. And that is that uh, as the, father of modern science-based wildlife management, he would be horrified at the current efforts to take management out of the hands of the professionals in the profession that he largely created and handed over to politicians and, and special interest groups. I think the thing that Leopold would be most proud of is the fact that he left this legacy of professionalism in in wildlife management and that the field has expanded uh, from its its early birth here in Wisconsin and that uh, we now have this cadre of professionals who know how to manage wildlife in the public's interest and the fact that it has recently uh, been pilloried in in some circles uh, the fact that 
decisions are now being left up to people who don't have the the educational background, the science background, and in some cases even the philosophical background to be making broad in broad uh, decisions about the public's wildlife. Do you, is there any example of that that uh, <laughs> that comes to mind for you, Stan, of particular interest, or that keeps you up at night? Well, for me, the thing that keeps me up at, at night, I suppose, is that, uh, you know, I'm in my 70s, and over my life, I have, uh, I have seen the world deteriorate. I've seen places that I deeply, deeply loved and cared about deteriorate. Species that were there when I was a kid are no longer there. The, the impact of climate change is visible to anyone who takes even a casual notice of the world around them. And it keeps me up at night realizing that I've only got a few more years to make my impact and that many of these changes that are happening, if we don't reverse them now, they're going to be practically irreversible, at least in, in a human time scale. So I think, you know, for me, the thing that keeps me up at night is uh, worrying about about my legacy, really, and and whether I've really done enough, whether I've done the right things during my uh, life and and career uh, to have truly made made a difference in the things that I really care about. What do you, if you had to look back on that career of yours, Stanley, and, and what you have done, and you, you, you sit here and you wonder about what that legacy is and what you've done. What are you the most proud of? What have you, what that you've spent your life on do you feel has had the most impact? Well, as a, an educator, um, I sort of put a, a high rank on, on the students that I've influenced. Um, when I retired, the department figured out that more than 10,000 students had taken my classes in ecology and, and conservation. And I know that all of those students, I hope, went on to be responsible uh, citizens. They're the things, you know, that I am particularly proud of. My graduate students who've all gone on to positions of, of substantial leadership in the conservation world. And I know will uh, carry with them and often pass on to their own students the things that they learned when they were at the University of Wisconsin. On a personal level, uh, the things that I've done, I know that there are species that would be extinct if it hadn't been for the work that my students and I have done. I know that the, the habitats on which they depend, that we had a substantial role in making sure that those areas were protected or, or managed in such a way that they would continue uh, to sustain those species. I know that my public outreach uh, the things that I'm doing right now uh, mm. have reached even larger audiences than the students who are in my classroom. And that's why, as a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation, uh, I take my role as sort of an outreach person very seriously and uh, try as hard as I can to, to reach as many people and many different audiences as possible uh, with messages about hope, really, and how we have the opportunity, if we care to, to change the way that we live on this planet and make it a better place for, for the future. So speaking of hope, um, you mentioned you mentioned that 
there are certain species that are still present on the earth today because of some of the work that you and your students have done. Um, it, it brought to mind this, this uh, one of the major environmental crises, I think, of our day. We're starting to become more and more aware related to uh, biodiversity across the world. Um, but I think that this is something that some people here in America, probably hunters specifically, uh, might have a hard time believing in because we are in the golden age of of deer populations, of black bear populations, of turkeys, of of so many game species that that hunters specifically are so interested in. They might be thinking, "Geez, things are better than they ever have been." Um, it's great, but if you were to widen the your lens and look beyond that, there's obvious examples that that's not the case. Um, can you can you just fill us in a little bit about what's going on across the rest of the country and across the rest of the world that's different than the success we've seen with white-tailed deer and turkeys and other game species here in North America? Uh, because, you know, there's increasing talk of this sixth mass extinction event, and we're losing animals so quickly in, in both big and small ways. I know that's something you've worked on with your work in conservation biology. Is that something you can give us a little insight into? Well, it certainly is, you know, a, a golden age for some of the species that have been sort of brought back by modern wildlife management. Uh, some of the species that we've been talking about, especially game species that were, were so depleted in the early 20th century and have been brought back by proper management. The reason that they were brought back is that we had a high regard for those species as resources. Mm -hmm. They were species that we used in, in some way, and therefore we had a, a sort of a, a selfish reason for wanting to see them come back. And part of the, the, the real tragedy for the loss of biodiversity is that many, the vast majority of the species that are disappearing from the planet are non-resources. People don't necessarily recognize them as being as valuable say, as a, as a white-tailed deer. And as a result, we don't pay as much attention to them, and we certainly don't put as much effort into trying to prevent their extinction. We are in the dark ages in terms of extinction. What we're experiencing now uh, is almost unprecedented in the history of life on this planet, that so many species are disappearing so quickly essentially, you know, in the span of, of a human lifetime, that uh, this is really concerning about the future because extinction, as they often say, is forever. Once they're gone, we can't bring them back. Once the passenger pigeon was gone, there's no, there's no bringing it back. So these are decisions about the future that, to some extent, uh, become irreversible. If we don't pay attention to preserving these species now, uh, they're going to be gone and we're not going to get them back. It's not the same situation that we faced with, uh, with a species like white-tailed deer, where they didn't disappear completely uh, and they could be brought back. But for many of the species that we're most worried about, they become endangered. They reach this sort of critical low threshold where even our best attempts to try to bring them back are largely going to fail just because we've let the situation deteriorate so much. So 
definitely, you know, the golden age in terms of a few wonderful success stories of modern wildlife management, but boy, the dark ages in terms of the bigger picture of life on the planet. I know there's a million different um, variables that are leading this to be the case, but can you describe a few of the major pressures that are leading to this happening so quickly and so uh, such on such a widespread basis? Well, you can point to the very specific issues of, of habitat loss, the spread of mm-hmm. harmful uh, invasive species, the fact that in some cases we still are over harvesting uh, some species, and the fact that uh, that the ecosystems of the world are starting to deteriorate because of climate change and other you know pervasive activities. Uh, but you boil it down. And uh, the ecologist Paul Ehrlich uh, did a brilliant job of breaking it all down to its root causes. And he described it as the IPAT equation. It's a simple little idea that I stands for the impact that humans have on the environment. And he said it's proportional or, or equal to P, which is how many of us there are on the planet. And A, our affluence, the rate at which we are consuming the world's resources. And T, the damaging technologies that we use to get those resources. And when you think about the biodiversity crisis, climate change, all of these big global issues that we're facing, and you think about it in terms of this simple iPad equation, it's us. It's the number of us, it's our consumption of resources, and it's the damage that we're doing to the environment while we get those resources. You know, I, I worry sometimes with this type of thing where the on-the-ground experience that someone like me might be having in Michigan is is different than what you're describing, right? As I mentioned, like here on the ground in Michigan, I'm seeing more wildlife than ever. And it might be easy for me to selfishly think, wow, I've got it great here. Why should I care about, or if I, if I'm really into deer, why should I care about the monarch butterflies out here? Or why should I care about the quail if I'm not hunting them? Or why should I care about the whatever? Um, and when I think about that, I'm, I get another line from Leopold comes back to mind where he said something along the lines of the key to management, or I think it was tinkering with the natural world or something like that the key to that was keeping all the parts like the number one thing we got to think about before anything else is we've got to keep all the parts around because whether we understand the part they play they do have a role which i think is another reminder to us who maybe have a predisposition to care about certain species to remember that it's not just all about deer the the butterflies the amphibians everything else has a part to play uh, and then we too then have a part to try to not manage just for the deer we want to hunt, but for the whole system as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Doug, what is, what does all this, how does all this resonate with you and, and the things that you do now? Uh, I, I, I like where you're going with that, that, that management, you know, I'm being so involved with private land management that I am, it's, you know, it's ecosystem management and that respect for all the species, you know, there were, we've been talking about, um, you know, some pretty dire stuff here, but one of the, one of the success stories, and, and it's one that I, um, I'd love to hear Stan talk about is that of the Sandhill crane. Um, I've had the, 
amazing experience to um, to share some time with him at the Leopold Foundation and uh, walk down to the to the river and witness um, witness the the gathering, the afternoon gathering of um, sandhill cranes as they're they're getting ready for their migration. And uh, Stan, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I believe Leopold thought that the sandhill crane um, would could very well be extinct in his lifetime. And through incredible um, work, and, and, and some of that is Stan's work and his graduate students' work, um, the Sandhill Crane is, is thriving now. Yeah, well, Doug, that was a, a wonderful evening that we spent on, on the river. And Sandhill Cranes are a beautiful example of a 20th century conservation success story. They were nearly wiped out in the upper Midwest and in the 1930s when Leopold uh, wrote his very poignant essay, Marshland Elegy. Uh, he expected they were going to go extinct in the Midwest, uh, despite the fact that they had been protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, something that Leopold was a great advocate for back uh, early in his career. And certainly for Sandhill Cranes, tragically, the reason they almost disappeared from the Midwestern landscape was quite simply because we killed them. Uh, we we killed them for the market with market hunting. Uh, we killed them because we thought they thought cranes were a threat to their agricultural crops. Uh, but once we sort of changed our relationship with cranes, and especially once we stopped killing them, sandhill cranes were very adaptable species and made the recovery pretty much on their own without any special efforts on the part of the conservation community. And they stand today, as I said, as uh, one of those remarkable success stories from a species that nearly disappeared uh, to one that's now now thriving. But it's important to point out that the, the threat to sandhill cranes was pretty simple to correct. Stop killing them at a rate that the population couldn't sustain. And they'll take care of themselves after that. For many other species, the problems are much more complicated, that they've lost their habitat, that their habitat is, is polluted in some way, uh, that they're affected by these big global issues of things like climate change that are a lot more difficult to, uh, to, to tackle and, and turn around. It can't be turned around quite simply in the matter of a few years or a few decades, the way things were turned around for sandhill cranes. But no question, the conservation community can uh, can take a lot of credit for species like the sandhill crane that did come back dramatically after we changed our behavior. Yeah, that's so interesting because um, because it was such a simple solution, and then we have uh, species like the white-tailed deer and uh, and uh, raccoons. And I didn't know the raccoon story uh, that you told earlier, and I was just kind of stunned by it because we're just overrun by them now. Um, but that, that there are so many of these species that do well, uh, uh, on a landscape that's been like, like Southwest Wisconsin, that's highly manipulated by land, or they, they, they're winners in that, in the, in the relationship with, with mankind and our, and, and the way we, uh, you know, work on the land yet. There's so many that, that don't, and that we also need to, to, to care for and, and be thinking about. And, and 
Um, and I was just thinking about how, um, sitting here listening to and how it, you know, it's informing even more of my philosophy as I'm thinking about management on the property that I'm at and, and then going up to 10,000 feet and looking over the driftless area and my neighbors and, and the public lands that are near me and, and all of that and how these things are also interconnected and how sure a deer, a raccoon, uh, coyotes, um, um, you know, uh, are the ones in Sand Hill Cranes now too are, are the ones that come to mind, but it's the, it's the, the ones that are so much more sensitive to, um, to the degradation of their, of the landscape and of their ecosystem that we, we really need to be thinking about. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the, the Sand Hill Crane and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Doug, cause it is this example of a win you know, of one of these things that we are able to bring back. And, it, you know, there's another, I, I love, you made a great point, Stan, that Leopold made, part of what made his book so impactful, I think, is that he has a wonderful way of of, of articulating a important idea in a single line or two. He has these little maxims that somehow he's he's dropped throughout this book that now still today so many of us remember these little lines, these these single thoughts that encapsulate these larger issues. And he so clearly and concisely articulated them that it's still the easiest way for us to bring something up. So we keep on referencing back to, well, Leopold said this. And he just said it so darn well. I mean, one of the things he said that comes to my mind now is he said that the, something along this, I paraphrase, but the downside of an ecological education is, you know, being alive in a, in a world of wounds. Like you, you have your eyes opened to all the things that are going on in the world that are bad for the environment, all the bad news, we all of a sudden start seeing it once you start paying attention to these things. And, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, as a young person, I was blissfully ignorant to any of the issues impacting, you know, species diversity, impacting the environment, et cetera. And as soon as you start really getting tapped into this, you you can get overwhelmed with the bad news. You mentioned we are in the dark ages of, of so many other things, even though, you know, deer and deer hunting and, and that side is doing so well. Um, it's easy to to lose hope when you start seeing endless examples and stories and alarms about this species going extinct or the ocean pollution or loss of bird populations, butterflies, grasslands, air quality, water quality. There's so much bad news out there. Uh, if if I could if I could bring Elder Leopold back for one night and have dinner with him. I think I would ask him how he kept hope or how he would keep hope today in the face of that, in the face of all these things that seem to be looming on the horizon. Um, but I can't bring Leopold back to ask him that. So I guess I'll ask you guys, how, how do you go about keeping hope and how can we keep hope for everyone else out there who's trying to learn about this stuff, who wants to get involved? How do we share these messages? How do we talk about these things Without people just getting so depressed that they turn that they tune it out and just say, "Well, I can't do anything about this disaster. I'm just going to go back to watching basketball or playing video games." Stan, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a it's a good point, and certainly Leopold was a hopeful hopeful person, as as am I, as as are you and 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 Doug. And I think a hopeful person is someone who recognizes that the odds are stacked against them but they're willing to give it their best shot to 
despite the odds. A pessimist, on the other hand, is somebody who knows that the odds are so stacked against them, that's what's, what's the use. Uh, as opposed to an optimist, somebody who knows that the odds are so stacked in their favor uh, that they don't have to worry about the outcome. But being hopeful obviously requires that you have a reason to be hopeful. And for Leopold, the reason that he was so hopeful, I think, was that he had faith in, in humanity. He had mm. faith in, in our ability uh, to see things clearly, to understand what's going on around us, and to, to make decisions that were informed by, by what we've learned, what we see, our own personal experiences, and, and to have an inherent ability to want to do the right thing. And that, that sort of motivation to do the right thing is why he was so hopeful that a land ethic would be the way forward, that that would be a turning point, that having that moral compass was going to be what really gave him hope for the future, that once that moral compass was firmly in place, that people would be inclined to always make decisions that would favor a healthy environment. Yeah. Doug, would you, would you add anything to, to your perspective on that? I would in reading, um, Leopold, one of the words that he uses from time to time, and it's, and it's a, a wonderful word is delight, the delight of it. Um, I'm a simpler person, so I use the word fun, uh, but fun and interesting. I mean, I think that um, one of the the opportunities that I have, and, and Mark, you and I have, and of course, Stan has had his whole career, but you and I have because of our the work that we do in, in outdoor media is, is is sort of sharing this, the, the fun and delight in um, in management and in, in thoughtfulness, um, mindfulness, um, of, of, of working and, and being in, um, nature. Um, you know, uh, one of my, the favorite, one of the, one of the favorite things that I did when uh, you and I were working together on the back 40 was to leave you, leave that tree for you to plant with your son. And when you did that, I mean, the, I got the biggest smile on my face when you sent that picture to me <laughs> yeah. uh, about, about planting that and, you know, that, 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 that passing that on, I had a, a young man, gee, I don't even know how old Owen is. I think he's 10, <laughs> um, came and, uh, and uh, spent some time on the farm with his uncle and, uh, and another one of my uh, sharing the land cooperators. And, and uh, boy, to get the opportunity to, 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 you know, sort of nurture that delight in that young man is, is uh, wonderful in that, uh, and watching his face light up. And I wasn't even trying to make his face light up so much as his face was just lit up all the time. You know, one of the things Leopold said was what more delightful avocation than to take a piece of land and be cautious and by cautious experimentation to prove how it works. What more substantial service to conservation to practice it on one's own land. I work with landowners, you know, regularly. I interact with landowners regularly. And um, I, I just find those kinds of opportunities to be, um, you know, the best. And, and you, can, you can sort of see those 
um, you know, ripples. So again, thinking about that, the tree that I gave you said to Leopold said to plant a pine, for example, one neither be neither be uh, God nor poet. One need only need a good shovel. Yeah, I <laughs> and, love that. Uh, there are those there are those kinds of things. There's it's amazing how Leopold was able to um, both speak so on such high levels and so eloquently and study and all of the science of all this and then break it down to a simple phrase like one just needs a good shovel. Um, and I find that stuff to be just delightful. So if we can, um, you know, continue to advocate in a, in a positive way to be serious when we need to be serious, but then, you know, point out the joy and the fun of it all. Um, uh, that, that will help us, um, be more, uh, more aware and that people will, you know, pick, you know, continue to pick it up and, and, and move forward with, with conservation and, and interact with the natural world world in an ethical way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a great point. Uh, well, Stan, do you want to, do you want to wrap this up for us? Um, I want to hear a little bit about Leopold week, um, for those who want to dive more into some of these ideas and philosophies and learn more about Leopold. Um, you guys have got a great slate of events coming up here in just a matter of days. Um, would you first be willing to share any final thoughts on what we've talked about today? If there's anything else you want to leave us with a final call to action or, or anything, um, we'd love to hear that. And then we'd love to hear more about where we can enjoy Leopold week. Sure. Well, the Aldo Leopold Foundation, which was created by Aldo Leopold's five uh, children uh, to further their father's legacy, uh, basically has some pretty simple mission statements. You know, one is promoting the land ethic and spreading it to different communities. Uh, And one of the ways we do that is through outreach efforts. And one of those is, of course, the celebration, if you will, of Leopold Week. It's a um, a period in early March in which we encourage and provide opportunities for communities to get together, to perhaps do communal readings of the Sand County Almanac, or to listen uh, to, to hopeful messages, um, and and be inspired by Leopold's uh, legacy. And uh, Leopold Week coming up uh, the second week in, in March, uh, there's a big slate of activities that the Leopold Foundation is is hosting. Um, all online, of course, this year. And you can tune into those and find out whether there are things that you might be especially interested in by simply going to the Leopold Foundation website, which is really simple. It's aldoleopold.org. And look at the lineup and uh, see whether there are things there that might, I, well, I almost guarantee there will be things there that will interest interest you. So tune it in and uh, perhaps think about doing some type of, of Leopold Week event in, in your community. Um, there's nothing uh, more sort of beneficial than, than spreading the word to your, to your immediate neighbors, and often a good way to do that would be to, to host some type of an event that uh, involves Aldo Leopold and, and his legacy. Terrific. Well, uh, Stan and Doug, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to kind of what's i don't know just just 
come in as a community and talk about this stuff. I, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say here, other than the fact that it has been cathartic. It has been good to just sit here and talk about uh, an important person, an important philosophy, an important set of ideas. Uh, I, I feel recharged to get back after it after this chat. So, so thank you, Doug. Thank you, Stan. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's like a good walk in the woods. Yes, which we could always use more of. All right. That is a wrap. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope it's given you some things to think about. Uh, but I want to give you a couple more action items, a couple pieces of homework. First, if you haven't read the Sand County Almanac yet, this book we keep referencing, what are you waiting for? Pick this thing up. You can get it for, I don't know, 15 bucks or something. It's a small book. It is just packed full of wisdom, great writing. It's worth it. Check it out. A Sand County Almanac. Secondly, I'd recommend you take Stan up on his offer to tune into the Leopold Week events coming up here in the next few days. It's running from March 4th through March 13th, 2022. In particular, you might be interested in one of these events. It's a webinar with Nick Offerman. That's uh, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. A lot of you guys must have watched Parks and Rec. It's a great show. The Ron Swanson character is Nick Offerman. He's written a number of great books. He's just recently written a book about conservation and the outdoors and nature. And in this talk, he's going to discuss his his own conservation awakening of sorts and a number of other things, I'm sure. So that one is on March 10th at 7 Central. Another one that might be interesting is a webinar with Michelle Nieheis. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. And she wrote a really interesting book called Beloved Beasts. It's about the history of conservation of wildlife in America and where things are headed uh, I read the book. I enjoyed it. Um, it might be worth watching that one as well. There's a number of other good ones too, but those are just two that stood out to me. So you can find all that and you can sign up for those video events at aldoleopold.org. And that's it. I appreciate you being here. Appreciate you tuning in. Um, yeah, I, um, I'm glad you guys are on this journey with me. It's been a journey over... 10, 15 years now, as I've gone from being someone who just really wanted to figure out how to kill deer to figuring out how do you kill more deer to figuring out how do you kill big bucks to figuring out how do you grow big bucks and manage land to then at some point realizing how do you make sure these things are around in the long term and how do we make sure we're giving back? That's been my journey over this last 15 years on Wired to Hunt. And for all of you who have uh, rode along with me, can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I hope you're enjoying it. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved 
via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.